it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome into Thursday, March 24th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday, GuyBensonShow.com is our online home. The podcast, the full show every day is on demand. It is free of charge. On social media, we are at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Maybe throw us a follow if you're feeling like it. Here's the lineup today. Molly Hemingway will join us shortly later on this hour. In the next hour, Dagan McDowell will be here on Inflation and More. And in our final hour, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg on the latest from Ukraine. We've got a lot to get to. On the TV side, just a programming note, I'll be on Brett Bayer's panel tonight on Fox News Channel in the 6 p.m. hour for special report. Fox News alert. President Biden just about an hour ago wrapped up a press conference in Brussels coming off of his meeting with fellow NATO leaders. Among other things, here's what he had to say in Cut 22. In addition to the 100,000 U.S. forces now stationed in Europe to defend NATO territory, NATO established, as you already know, four new battle groups in Romania, Hungary, Bulgaria, and Slovakia to reinforce the Eastern Front. Putin was banking on NATO being split. My early conversation with him in December and early January was clear to me he didn't think we could sustain this cohesion. NATO has never, never been more united than it is today. Putin is getting exactly the opposite what he intended to have as a consequence of going into Ukraine. We've built that same unity with our European, the European Union and with the leading democracies of the G7. And we'll have more on this crisis, as I mentioned, coming up later in the show, including our interview with General Kellogg. We begin today with an editorial by the Washington Post. And just quickly a note on newspaper lingo and lexicon. There are op-eds or columns in a newspaper. Op-eds are often from outside sources. Someone's written a piece. Columns generally come from a stable of columnists who work at the newspaper. Then there are editorials, which is the official position of the newspaper and the editorial board collectively. This, and I'm about to read from, is an editorial. This is the official view of the Washington Post's editorial board. I saw the headline and my jaw dropped. It is like satire. There's gaslighting and then there's this from the Washington Post. It's as if they want to advertise to the country, dear America, pay us no attention, pay us no heed, We are not to be trusted. We are not serious people. And this is why our credibility is in the toilet. Ready for this headline? Republicans boast they have not pulled a Kavanaugh. Talking about the current Supreme Court hearings that wrapped up today. In fact, they've treated Jackson worse. It is the position of the Washington Post 
that Republicans this week have treated Judge Jackson worse than Democrats treated Brett Kavanaugh in 2018. Now, I was alive and conscious in 2018, as were most of you. And this assertion bears absolutely no resemblance to reality. It is fantasy. It is gaslighting on steroids. Here's part of what they write, the editors of Washington Post. Throughout her Senate confirmation hearings, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson has been a model of composure, which is made all the more impressive by the egregious behavior of some of the Republican side. Now, we can argue about whether the behavior from some Republicans amounts to egregious. I have disagreed with some of their lines of argument. I think some of this is showboating and grandstanding, which you always see in hearings like this. But to pretend, as some insist upon, that this week was somehow out of bounds or beyond the pale or really awful compared to how things normally go is just simply wrong. Back to the editorial. During the hearings, Republicans such as Senator Lindsey Graham have congratulated themselves for declining to treat Judge Jackson the way Democrats handled the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. In fact, by the most relevant measures, I love that, Mr. Graham and a handful of other judiciary Republicans have handled themselves worse. Really. A woman credibly accused Mr. Kavanaugh of sexual assault. Let's pause on that for a moment. No, she didn't. Dr. Blasey Ford made an allegation. Credibility is contingent upon evidence. There was no evidence. There is no evidence. In fact, there is precisely the same amount of evidence that Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson was engaged in an attempted sexual assault as there ever was or is that Brett Kavanaugh did anything of the sort, which is to say none. An allegation is not evidence. Credibility must be backed up with proof, evidence, contemporaneous or otherwise, and there is... None backing any of the claims that were made against Brett Kavanaugh. And I'll have more to say about that in a moment, since they continue to insist on lying about what happened in 2018, lying about that case, lying about Kavanaugh, lying about the evidence. They will not let it go. And for that reason, neither will we. We will fact check them into oblivion for the rest, at least speaking on my own behalf, for the rest of my life. If they demand to continue with their lies. And the Washington Post editorial board front and center. Because it wasn't just Democratic activists and Democrats in the Senate. It was a lot of people in the media, journalists who were part of that mob. Against Kavanaugh. Actively participating in it or cheering it on, rooting it on. And now people who are in the mob are trying to tell the rest of us, oh, no. That wasn't so bad. What's really bad is what happened this week to Judge Jackson. (laughs) So they write, a woman credibly accused Mr. Kavanaugh of sexual assault. No evidence. Democrats, they write, rightly asked the committee to investigate. I'll remind you that this allegation was not deemed credible by the chairwoman at the time, Dianne Feinstein. She did not see that it was relevant to bring up 
in the hearings, even in closed session. Then some left wing activists working with their partners, staffers on the committee on the Democratic side, they dropped these allegations like a bombshell after the hearings were over. In a very cheap trick stunt, a very dirty play. And the Washington Post is like, oh, they just they just asked some questions. They just wanted to investigate after a superficial FBI review. This is what the editorial claims, a superficial FBI review. This was one of multiple FBI background checks of Brett Kavanaugh. I believe it was six or seven over the course of his career. They wanted another review. They got one. And the only thing that the FBI review found in terms of new information was that Blasey Ford's dear friend at the time and her top witness told the FBI that she was pressured to lie to hurt Brett Kavanaugh by the accuser's allies. She said she and all the other supposed witnesses at this alleged party, none of them said the party happened. None of them backed up the claims. She said that they never seemed like they made sense to her. And she has since told reporters, this is the friend, Leland Kaiser, that she does not believe her friend, Christine Blasey Ford. She does not believe the story. No element of it is true. And her allies were bullying her behind the scenes to get her to lie, to exaggerate, to perjure herself potentially in order to achieve a political end against Kavanaugh, which Blasey Ford's own lawyer admitted later. This was about abortion jurisprudence. They had political motives. So that's what the FBI investigation actually found. It was bad information for the accusations, which is why they're pretending that it really was just superficial and didn't achieve anything. Because it hurt the cause of the mob. In the end, the Washington Post editors write, it was Mr. Kavanaugh who behaved intemperately. Yeah, he did. He raised his voice. He got emotional. You know why? He was being accused in front of the world of being not just an attempted sexual assailant in high school, for which there is no evidence, but also a gang rapist, a serial gang rapist. That is what his wife was being dragged through and his kids. This lunatic woman came out of nowhere and said that Kavanaugh was doing gang rapes in the suburbs of D.C. as a teenager. Her story was completely false, totally fell apart. She was represented by Michael Avenatti, who's now in prison. There was not a shred of evidence to support this insane, psychotic claim against Brett Kavanaugh. And yet, at the time, just after Julie Swetnick and Michael Avenatti trotted out this just defamatory smear, And she did perjure herself on this. The whole thing completely unraveled, I will remind you. It was debunked. It was a giant, disgusting lie. But Senate Democrats on that committee all wrote a letter that day saying, because of this, in fact, I can quote, following the release of a sworn affidavit from Julie Swetnick detailing new allegations of sexual assault by Brett Kavanaugh, All 10 Democratic members of the Senate Judiciary Committee today urged President Trump to immediately withdraw the nomination. Chuck Schumer joined in this insistence. 
he joined in the demand. So you had every Democrat on that committee who had the gall this week to talk about comportment and civility and norms. Are you kidding? All of them, plus Schumer, their leader in the Senate, all seized upon the gang rape fantasy from this crazy person and her now felon lawyer as a reason for Kavanaugh to withdraw. But the real problem was Brett Kavanaugh behaving intemperately when people were accusing him on the record of gang rape. By contrast, this is the Washington Post again, Republicans have smeared Judge Jackson based on obvious distortions of her record and the law. We've actually talked about some of this. I think some of the criticisms and attacks and lines of inquiry were misleading. I would not have endorsed or embraced some of the things that Republicans did, but at least they were talking about her actual record. They were talking about her behavior, her conduct, her decisions as a judge, as a lawyer within the realm of criminal justice. They were not talking about her high school drinking habits. They were not asking him when she lost her virginity. They weren't asking her that. They weren't asking about drinking games. They weren't talking about her participation in conjured out of nothing gang rapes. But it's the Republican questioning this week that The Washington Post says that's really a bridge too far with these disgraceful Republicans. Worse than Kavanaugh. Worse. What an insult. These people think we have no memory. These people think we are morons. The editorial concludes, neither side is blameless in the politicizing of the confirmation process, but particularly after they iced out then-Judge Merrick Garland in 2016, Republicans have done the most damage. I could do an entire hour, and in fact I have, years ago on this show, completely refuting that. It is Democrats who have ratcheted up this blood sport on judicial confirmations for decades, starting with Bork through to Clarence Thomas, all the way to Kavanaugh. They escalate unilaterally time and time again. The blockade of Merrick Garland was using a Democrat advocated tactic. With lots of obstruction that the Democrats pioneered themselves. And these tendentious ideologues who have no respect for the facts or the collective intelligence of the American people at the Washington Post want us to believe that the Republicans are the aggressors that have done the most damage when it comes to the way that these confirmation battles play out wrong. And that what we just witnessed over the last few days was worse than what the Democrats and their allies did a few years ago to now Justice Brett Kavanaugh. What a crock of garbage. And I want to go down memory lane with you and just play some sound from 2018. Not that long ago. We remember it. It does not compare to anything that happened this week. And we will get to some of those sound bites as soon as we return. Just getting started on The Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. 
Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Look, I want to say this. Go ahead. I'll put up, I'll put up her credibility against Donald Trump's or Brett Kavanaugh's any day of the week. I mean, all of these women cannot be lying. I mean, how many women are we up to now that are accusing Brett Kavanaugh of inappropriate uh, conduct? I'm Guy Benson. That was Michael Avenatti on CNN with Chris Cuomo. Isn't that fun? Back in 2018, saying he would put his clients' credibility up against Brett Kavanaugh's any day of the week. Well, how's that working out? His client, Julie Swetnick, has been 100% discredited. She was lying about the gang rape. And all the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee embraced that smear and used it to call on Kavanaugh to withdraw. Kavanaugh is a sitting associate justice on the United States Supreme Court. And Michael Avenatti is a convicted felon sitting in prison. Remember this? Cory Booker cut 15 during the Kavanaugh mess. I knowingly violated the rules that were put forth. I understand that that the penalty comes with potential ousting from the Senate. I'm okay. saying I'm knowingly violating the rules. Okay. Senator Cornyn called times me out le- for it. How many times I, I you learned? Tell us, sir. I've Yesterday I broke <laughs> these sham committee confidential rules, and I accept full responsibility for what I'm doing. Absolute clown. He couldn't brag enough about how he was breaking the rules in order to signal resistance against Brett Kavanaugh. Remember, the Washington Post tells us what Republicans did this week far worse. Kamala Harris, then a senator, interrupted the first sentence of the hearing from Chairman Grassley, started demanding all sorts of, you know, calls to order and an opportunity to ask questions, interrupting Grassley. There were protesters screaming and shrieking in the gallery, being dragged out, Constantly. How about this from Sheldon Whitehouse, Mr. White Club, cut 18. I don't believe boof is flatulence. I don't believe the devil's triangle is a drinking game. And I don't believe calling yourself a girl's alumnus is being her friend. It was a disgrace. It was one of the worst things I've ever seen in our politics. And the Washington Post editors have the gall to try to tell us that this week was far worse on behalf of the Republicans, get out of here. That's a lie, and it's self-discrediting. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, free podcast every day. And we bring in now Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist and a Fox News contributor. Her most recent best-selling book is Rigged, but I think we might start with her previous book that she co-authored, Justice on Trial. Molly, welcome back. It's great to be here with you. 
So we have seen this week play out with Judge Jackson. The confirmation hearings just wrapped up earlier today. There'll be a committee vote upcoming, and then there will be a confirmation vote early next month. I expect her to be confirmed narrowly, mostly party lines, maybe 51, 52 yes votes, and that will be a wrap on this particular process. I have been frustrated and increasingly annoyed over these last few days by people in the press, Democrats and other activists, pretending or like feigning outrage and umbrage about the way this hearing was playing out and that Republicans were way out of bounds and way over their skis and really disgracing themselves with the types of questions they were asking to Judge Jackson. And then I would say the piece de resistance of this gaslighting came this morning in the form of an editorial that I spent the first half hour today just dismantling from the Washington Post, arguing that Republicans this week treated Judge Jackson worse than the Democrats treated Brett Kavanaugh in 2018. You wrote the book literally on that process. I've made my points about how insultingly wrong that claim is, that lie is from the Washington Post. But I wanted to get your perspective because you know even more about this than I do. Well, I'm glad you called it a lie because that's what it is. It's a knowing lie to claim that asking a judge not even particularly tough questions about her judicial record is worse than falsely accusing someone of being a serial gang rapist, which is what the Washington Post did as a leader of the anti-Kavanaugh effort. I have no doubt they would like to memory hole what they did to that man and what they did to the judicial confirmation proceedings. I, I would, too, if I were them, if I had done such horrible, despicable, evil things, I would want to lie about it, too. But they cannot be allowed to cover up what they did and that they were the leaders of this effort uh, cannot be forgotten either. Many media people and other Democrats participated in it, but the Washington Post really bears a lot of the responsibility, and they can't be allowed to forget it. Yeah. And I just want to address a few things here, because what we're also hearing is that, oh, well, Kavanaugh was credibly accused of sexual assault, and there were multiple accusers. Just to break this down for a moment, there were four allegations against Kavanaugh. One was from Christine Blasey Ford. There was absolutely no evidence to support her claims at all. And her own father doesn't believe her. Her star witness doesn't believe her. Her star witness was pressured to lie on her behalf on this front. No evidence, none. The second allegation was a woman who went to Yale with Kavanaugh. She was, and even the New York Times reported this, phoning up friends before she made the allegation on behalf of or in conjunction with her left-wing lawyers trying to see if they could crowdsource a memory about Brett Kavanaugh. She's like, I think something like this happened to me. Was it Brett Kavanaugh? Could it have been Brett Kavanaugh? She wasn't even sure what happened or that it was Kavanaugh. She made the claim anyway, and there is, again, no evidence supporting it. And the people she says were in the room when it happened all say it did not happen. So that one was not true, not credible. Then you had the gang rape Julie Swetnick insanity, totally debunked. Uh, just a complete fever dream that the Democrats seized on to call for Kavanaugh to be withdrawn as a nominee. And the fourth allegation was through a third party. And the woman in question came out and said, this is not true. This never happened. They are 0 for 4. They're not even close to presenting any evidence. But to this day, they continue, Molly, to insist darkly that he's some sort of 
sexual predator, and he got away with it because the Republicans don't care about sexual predation. And then they have the stones to turn around and say the question and answers this week with Judge Jackson were you know terrible and, and out of place. It absolutely makes me furious. You are right to be furious. And, you know, just even that point of how they're never admitting that what they said wasn't true. That's why Carrie Severino and I wrote the book in the first place. We had lived through the Clarence Thomas proceedings, which were uh, in some ways worse, in some ways more mild. Uh, He was accused of sexual harassment. At the end of his proceedings, the vast majority of Americans, black, white, male, female, believed him. But then the left went on a 30-year crusade to sort of never let it go. They created fictional movies and you know, fictionalized documentaries and books and magazine articles to just keep on pushing this point. And knowing that that's what they would do with Kavanaugh, Carrie and I thought it was important to get the actual history down. So we interviewed more than 100 people, many of them several times, you know, everyone involved in the whole play, you know, in the whole action, um, you know, people very close to all the key players. And we were able to write down this this definitive history based on reporting. And yet you see what the left does. They, they want to kind of hide the fact that they never had any substantiation for any of their feverish claims and just continue to try to destroy the life and family of a man that they didn't like for purely political reasons. And that is despicable. I think much of the country was horrified by what people were willing to do. It radicalized a lot of people, awakened Mm -hmm. them to how much the media lie. And I would just point out, they lied about that then. They lied about what they did then. What else are they lying about now? What are they telling the truth about? Might be a better question because it seems so rarely to occur. I would note that in 2018, which is when this happened, there was a midterm election. The Democrats gained 40 seats in the House that year. But the map was a little different in the Senate. Republicans gained multiple Senate seats that cycle. And I think a lot of that was driven by this, by a Republican base that was maybe not excited to turn out in some of these Senate races, but they did because they were so angry about what had been done to Kavanaugh. And it backfired on the Democrats because then Republicans had more senators to comfortably confirm Amy Amy Coney Barrett, what, two years later. So – They have been burned and singed by this, but they are still learning no lessons. And by the way, Molly, one other point. I've heard some complaints on the left that when people like you and me talk about the gang rape allegation, it's like, oh, well, that was not really the central allegation. I'm sorry. That's also some gaslighting, because as I pointed out, it was that allegation from Swetnick and Avenatti that led the Democrats to call on Kavanaugh to withdraw. They treated it completely credibly, even though it had no credibility. Indeed, here's Chuck Schumer, the leader of the Democrats in the Senate at the time after the gang rape stuff. Cut 17. I strongly believe Judge Kavanaugh should withdraw from consideration and the president should withdraw this nomination if Kavanaugh won't do it voluntarily. If he will not, at the very least, The hearing and vote should be postponed while the FBI investigates all of these very serious and very troubling allegations. What a joke. He's very solemn. He's very concerned. He's intoning about how, at the very least, there must be an investigation into these very serious allegations. As I've outlined, there was no merit or evidence behind any of them. And when the FBI did look further into the most prominent of them, the only new information they turned up was a bullying pressure attempt to get someone to lie. 
in order to hurt Brett Kavanaugh. And that has been totally memory hold by these people. And it wasn't just Chuck Schumer. It was every single member of the Demo- every single Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee signed a letter That's right. saying that they because of this Julie Swetnick thing, CNN, NBC, Washington Post, they all called it a credible allegation that that Brett Kavanaugh was the leader of a serial gang rape cartel roaming the streets of Maryland. It was insane what they put the country through. And you're right that it backfired on them. But I think there are lessons for both Democrats and Republicans, because it wasn't just that the Democrats uh, did these despicable things. It's that Republicans stood up to them. And I think a big reason why Republicans gained seats wasn't just reaction against Democrats, but support for some of the Republicans working really hard to push back against this behavior. And so there are lessons for both parties there. Yeah. Now, one more question on this, Molly, and I addressed this a little bit in my opening monologue. But in this editorial from The Washington Post, which is about as embarrassing as I can recall, as I said, it's almost like a huge advertisement to the American people. Do not take us seriously because we are actively not to be trusted. This is their conclusion The editorial board at The Washington Post, neither side is blameless in the politicizing of the confirmation process, but particularly after they iced out then-Judge Merrick Garland in 2016, Republicans have done the most damage. Molly, we can get into the 2016 episode with Merrick Garland, why that happened, what led up to it, the precedent that Democrats set for what the Republicans did with the Republicans forcing them to live by their own rules, rules laid out by Chuck Schumer, rules laid out by Joe Biden. That is, I know, I know that history and I'm happy to have that debate. And it's a debate that I'll win if we have that debate, not with you, just with, with these critics. But it's the, the other assertion here. That, oh, yes, both sides bear some blame in how toxic all of this has gotten, but Republicans have done the most damage. I mean, the Washington Post, these are supposed to be adults who cover this town. Bork, Thomas, Kavanaugh, nothing has ever come close to any of those things when it was the Republicans behaving badly. I mean, the the Democrats, the way they treated Sam Alito in what was that, 05 or 06? That was worse than anything we've seen, for example, this week. And when, yeah, they questioned Alito's citizenship, I think it was, and his wife left the room in tears. Uh, you know, you can you can complain about things like just refusing to have a hearing on uh, on the opening left by Scalia's death. But it's worth remembering that even like that's a great example. The Republicans came out before anyone was even nominated and said, we're simply not going to we're simply not going to um hold hearings on this. So it wasn't personal. They didn't say Merrick Garland is a serial gang rapist, so we're going to play games to try to <laughs> right. stop this. They just said, we're, you know, we're going to use our power to not have a hearing. You have every right to disagree with that. But there's no comparison to trying to destroy a father and a husband and a man with an impeccable reputation based on nothing but the most scurrilous coordinated allegations. Uh, well said. We'll leave that there because I've now done uh, 47 minutes on this on the show. But, like, obviously this really got under my skin today. And I was like, you know what? I've got a radio show, and I'm going to say some things to the country because I have a platform, and sometimes I feel compelled to use it and really hammer on a point. Today's one of those days. But, Molly, let's shift a little bit to this Hunter Biden laptop story. And I have not spoken with you on air since the New York Times confirmed largely what the Washington or rather the New York Post 
had reported back in late 2020, home stretch of the election season. You know, it's those crucial crunch final days. New York Post had their revelations about Hunter Biden and that laptop and the contents of the laptop, which I think a lot of people sort of gloss right over. They were censored. It was called Russian disinformation by the Biden campaign and therefore all of the media. And they got about 50 intelligence service alumni to sign a letter saying, oh, yes, this is Russian disinformation. And now here we are years later and it can finally be said, oh, actually, it wasn't disinformation. It was an authentic laptop. Uh, the, The material on that laptop was real. And I know that you have thoughts on this. I've seen and read some of them, but I want to give you the opportunity to sort of contextualize this. It's just fascinating that the New York Times is admitting what we all knew was true, which is that this was not Russian disinformation, that it was a real laptop with real information about the Biden family business. There's no question that this is an important story for real journalists to look into because, you know, it's, it's no it's not uh, dumping on Hunter Biden to note that he's not an energy expert. He's not someone that you would entrust with millions of dollars of cash. Normally, he has problems. And yet he keeps on getting all this money from oligarchs and people connected to foreign governments. And um, this is this is something that needs to be covered that The New York Times is admitting it two years too late is fine. Um, But there's a lot that needs to be done because even, you know, I saw that um, Elise Stefanik noted that one of the women who gave $3.5 million to Hunter Biden and his partner, who was the wife of the Moscow mayor, she's an oligarch that was not, um, that she was not sanctioned by the Biden sanctions. So that's interesting. Is that related to the fact that she was giving the Biden family so much business or not? We don't know. And this is something, you know, that should be looked into. Molly, has there been any further exploration by The New York Times or any of these people who are suddenly coming around to at least admitting this story was not the hoax that they said it was? Has there been any exploration about the identity or into the identity of the so-called big guy? Has there been any microphone put in the face of any of these 50 intel people, including former CIA directors, Clapper, Brennan and others, Has there been any questions put to them, pointed or otherwise, about whether they retract what they said right before an election, which was putting their credibility on the line for what turned out to be a political hit job? The New York Post actually did contact all of the people who falsely uh, put out this note that it was Russian disinformation. Most of them refused to comment. A couple doubled down and said, well, it really looked like Russian disinformation. There should be consequences for this. Rather than being paraded on TV networks to continue to spew misinformation and disinformation, these people are the primary sources of disinformation and misinformation, even as they claim to decry misinformation and disinformation. Um, And they've been doing it on so many big topics over so many years and yet there there aren't there nobody's held accountable because it's like this symbiotic relationship between people who claim to be journalists and people who claim to be intelligence officials they both feed off of each other but i would just caution people again what are they lying about now it's bad enough what they've lied about in terms of the russia collusion hoax the hunter biden laptop um you know wmd in iraq but there are so many stories going forward where people continue to rely on these people or continue to believe journalism from people who have shown themselves to lack credibility and it's at some point it's our fault if we continue to believe um, information coming from anonymous sources and and run through the intel apparatus. You know, I almost respect more the people who decided to double down 
on <laughs> their faulty analysis than the ones who wouldn't comment because they were more than happy to comment in this uh, you know bombshell letter to influence a presidential election. But now when their analysis has been completely gutted by reality, all of a sudden they have nothing to say. That is even weaker, in my opinion, than pretending that they were maybe right all along and they didn't really get it wrong, even though they did. Got to leave it there for now. Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist, Fox News contributor. Uh, Relevant again, you might want to pick up the book, Justice on Trial, Get the Real Story, Not the Lies. Uh, She co-wrote that with Carrie Severino. She also has another book out called Rigged, which was a bestseller, at MZ Hemingway on Twitter. Molly, always a pleasure, but especially today. Thanks so much. Take care, Guy. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show, we mentioned at the top that President Biden gave a press conference in Brussels earlier today, just this afternoon. And he made one statement that contrasts with something said by his vice president just a few weeks ago last month. Cut 23. Let's get something straight. You remember, if you covered me from the very beginning, I did not say that, in fact, the sanctions would deter him. Sanctions never deter. You keep talking about that. Sanctions never deter. But if you believe Putin has made up his mind, what leverage do you really have? Why not put those sanctions in place now? The purpose of the sanctions has always been and continues to be deterrence. The purpose of the sanctions is to deter. That was a month ago. Today, I've never said, we've never said that the sanctions are meant to deter. They never deter. This is why I think his ratings are still underwater on this issue, because so many of their statements are contradictory and their actions incoherent. Another hour coming up on The Guy Benson Show. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. It's a new hour on the Guy Benson Show, our middle of three, between three and six Eastern every weekday. I'm Guy Benson. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free on demand every day. And it is increasing in popularity. And we're very encouraged by those numbers. Thank you. We do appreciate it. GuyBensonShow.com. Quickly, a Fox News alert. The Dow had a good day today, finishing up 348 points, closing at 34,707. Programming note, I'll be on special report tonight on the panel with Brett Baer and company, so I'll see you there, Fox News Channel, right around 6.40 Eastern. Joining us now is Dagan McDowell, anchor and analyst on Fox Business Network, also a business correspondent for Fox News Channel. She appears every day on Mornings with Maria on FBN, 6 to 9 a.m. And, Dagan, it's great to have you back here, as always. Thank you for having me, Guy, always. So the market's doing well today. I know people are also excited about the jobless claims plunging to lowest levels since 1969. That is good news. The bad news is with people at work and people getting you know, wage gains, for example, and seeing those things, it's just being eaten up and then some by inflation. And on that front, the Fed chair gave a speech just recently – in which he predicted that inflation will be with us 
for perhaps three years before we can get back to a normal level. That's a long time, Dagan. That's that's a lot of pain. Well, the pain is going to come from the Federal Reserve as it tries to fight that inflation. And I will just point to what's been going on with the 10-year Treasury bond. And we pay attention to that because that is the instrument off of which, say, mortgage rates are priced and calculated. And longer-term interest rates have been going up ahead of what the Federal Reserve will continue to do to fight inflation in the coming months. So the 10-year bond is at 2.34%. But you have mortgage rates now. 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is going to cost you 4.5%. It was about 2.8% a year ago. There was a Somebody told me at Wells Fargo they were pricing uh, 30-year mortgages at four and uh, three quarters percent. So that is already, you're already seeing that kind of additional pain. That will put pressure on certainly housing prices. Uh, There's some pent-up demand, but rates go up, houses get um, more expensive to buy, so those prices are going to need to come down to get into line with what people are paying to borrow. It's going to change car leases, uh, loans on automobiles, but this is just the beginning of it because you wa- what you're seeing, just watching because of what's happening in Ukraine, what's happening with gasoline prices and diesel prices. A source of mine told me that even though gasoline prices nationwide have come down, they're still super high in California, but the national average for gas right now is $4.23 a gallon. The still high was four- really high. It's still really high, but we're going to get to probably new all-time highs, $4.35 a gallon. California is going to be well over $6 a gallon. And diesel, there's a shortage of diesel globally, particularly in Europe. But there is going to be a worldwide recession potentially because of the shortages of diesel fuel and the sky-high prices. So two things that you're – You're going to say you hate to bring it down, but look, what's happening is happening, and this is why we have you here, to bring your analysis and your knowledge to the table. And I want to come back to what you just said, but just for a moment to take a breath here, the the effect of interest rates going up will be painful in a number of different ways as the Fed uses these instruments to try – to combat inflation. But what the Fed chairman is saying is even as they do that, inflation is still going to remain elevated and high for three years. I mean, it's not just this November. I mean, this could still be a lingering, significant political live wire in 2024 based on what Powell is saying. So I just want to make that point clear from a political standpoint. And then there's that that second. If you want to react, go ahead. Yeah, just really quickly, but he was saying inflation was transitory a year ago. So they're behind the eight ball. And so part of what he's trying to do now is um, at least prepare people for what the medicine is going to be, number one. Mm. And once inflation expectations get built in to the psyche of consumers and the psyche of business owners and operators, it is very hard to break that. That inflation begets inflation, that people expect higher prices and that creates higher prices. It is a psychological cycle that starts yep. developing. And the Fed should have known that a year ago. And so that if they were going to use language like you're hearing today, he should 
should have been J Powell should have been using that language a year ago rather than saying don't worry about it it's going to go away which is in essence what transitory means he doesn't know what he's doing and that's equally frightening he did admit in this speech that they had been getting it wrong on inflation and downplaying it for too long so this is obviously something of a course correction at least rhetorically but then Dagan you just said at the end of your previous answer that you believe, based on what you're seeing and what you're hearing, that we are headed toward a global recession. I saw Larry Kudlow use that word recently. Larry Summers of the Obama administration, who's a Democrat, he's been very worried about inflation and then stagflation and now recession. It seems like more people are starting to use that word. I expected a recession go at the end of the um at the end of the last year, I, expe- I was expecting a recession this year or late this year, next year, for one reason. And I've said it on the five, the New Year's Day special, because the Federal Reserve has to take away the punch bowl and remove all this accommodation and begin to destroy money. They expanded their balance sheet to $9 trillion. So when uh, the money supply goes up by 40%, and that was in large part to just sop up the debt from all the federal spending as part of COVID relief. So when you have money supply explodes by 40%, so do prices. This is unprecedented Federal Reserve monetary stimulus. We've never seen anything like this before. We've never seen a Federal Reserve balance sheet. They were creating money explode to this size. So when you try to reverse that and start destroying money, and the balance sheet reductions will start in a few months. Last go-round after the financial crisis in 2008, the Federal Reserve held its balance sheet steady for three years. We're talking about three months now that they're going to start destroying money. Just purely based on that, I saw asset bubbles beginning to explode and a recession. But you couple in what has happened with oil and gasoline and natural gas, diesel, of course, is refined out of crude oil. You throw that in and the supply problems and the pricing issues that all Americans are facing, you're definitely seeing a recession. And the Federal Reserve can't do anything about what the economic impact of what is happening coming out of the war on Ukraine. So, How can people hedge? If that's going to happen, and you seem very definitive that it is going to happen, a recession is coming, how can people prepare for that? How can people try to mitigate and minimize even more pain that's coming if there's a recession, You know, as you're, as you're predicting here? Because we know many Americans are already – a majority of Americans are already living paycheck to paycheck right now. Yet wages are falling when you factor in inflation. Real wages have been falling. Uh, for the last year. And I, and guy, I hate doing the, well, you you know, tips. I hate tips. I don't know when to hear tips and I try not to give tips to people. Uh, But because that's like the kind of the 
cornerstone of personal finance journalism, which I've been doing for most of the last – did for many, many years. Mm-hmm. One thing that you can do, if you if rate interest rates are going up, if you've got adjustable rate debt, you've got to focus on trying to pay that down as quickly as you, pos- as you possibly can because that debt, the rate on it, is going to adjust higher. Credit card debt, the rates are already high on credit card debt, but you got to focus on that and take it upon yourself to try and figure out how you're going to cope with the higher gas prices. Because I don't, we can get into this, but the waiving the gas taxes in some of these states, that cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs idea out of Gavin Newsom out in California where they're going to send $400 checks to people who have cars. That is is literally, we need to spend more money to fight inflation. That is the, that is idiot, the idiocy come to life of liberal policies, that they need to spend money to fight inflation. What what we need as a, as a globe, as a country, is to reduce demand for oil and natural gas and, and, and diesel. But you reduce demand by using it less. And I think it's up to the American people. They will adjust. They are adjusting to the higher prices. They're trying to mitigate uh, the impact of the higher gas prices by using gasoline less and by driving less. I think that that is going to be critically important for everybody. And don't wait. And don't wait for the government to tell, like, don't wait for the government to do something like Georgia's cutting, waiving the gas tax and Maryland's waiving the gas tax. I don't think that's a good idea. It's less offensive to me than cutting checks, which those dem- there's some Democrats, three a trio of House Democrats who want to do the same thing. It's a gas rebate act. That's just spending money. That's spending government. Yeah, well, the White money House, the White House have. was reportedly talking about it, like sending gift cards, like gas gift cards to people, and they realize, wait, that's just more spending in a slightly different form. And by the way, I'm, I'm glad that even though that you are not a fan of tips, you gave a few right there. Last question, Dagan. And it's on an issue that's been a hobby horse for me over the last week or so. The White House and congressional Democrats, and this sort of aligns and it follows on what we were just talking about, they are insisting that Congress needs to spend billions more dollars on COVID relief because they're claiming poverty. They're claiming that the federal government's out of money on important things like testing and monoclonal antibodies. They've authorized $6 trillion already on covid over the last two years much of it is unspent a lot of it is earmarked for stuff that has nothing to do with direct covid relief and yet they're coming back to the well saying oh we're out of money we need more i just find it shocking that they're even trying this just remember if they're spending more money and you're mad about inflation look who caused it and look who really doesn't understand why it exists because they're doing more of the same. Mm-hmm. They are literally – and the Federal Reserve, I think Joe Biden's going to you know, – he reappointed Jay Powell. Jay Powell is like, nope, not going to stand here and sop up the debt you've been issuing, not going to stand here and back up the your spendthrift ways. The fact that they're still talking about spending – on COVID, that you don't that's have wild. enough. What? That's where Gavin Newsom gets the money to issue four hundred dollar gift cards to people, right? Because they, they give got excess to states. money from the COVID relief. So enough, they need to not spend. 
no more spending and yeah, good luck. Get, they're not even they're not even aware of what the american pe- the american people know better and they've always treated the american people for the last year and change as idiots it's the idiots in dc that need a dip and a flea <laughs> dagan mcdowell i want to end on this note thanking you for i think i saw either on your instagram or on your twitter you introduced me to your brother's instagram feed and he's a chef and those photos are amazing, and a, thank um, you. Just a um, – he is not – he's just a home cook. A home, that's what a, I meant to he say. Works, he's, a, he's a technology engineer, but he's a one of the best cooks you'll ever experience. Put it this way. I'll leave you with this. He takes his immersion circulator on vacation to the beach. Wow. Mic drop. Uh, look, I want to ha- hang out with him. I, like maybe like you're great, but I kind of want to hang out with him <laughs> to eat this food. It looks amazing. Let's all hang out together. How about that? <laughs> okay, deal. <laughs> all right, Dagan McDowell, <laughs> Fox Business Network and Fox News. Really appreciate it. Uh, knock him dead on TV tonight. Thank you, sir. We'll be right back on the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. I've heard from some of you, by the way, being like, how can you talk about Dagan McDowell's brother having an amazing food Instagram? All the stuff that he cooks is this very high-level amateur chef or cook and not tell us what it is. I follow Dagan on Instagram. I recommend you do, too. A lot of cute dog pictures. But if you want to follow the brother and look at his beautiful, I mean, it's food porn. That's what it is. The photos are beautiful. It's impressive, some of the stuff that he's cooked. It's at Landon BRB. So enjoy. He's going to get a random influx of followers. It's like, what just happened? The Guy Benson show happened. Landon BRB, if you're interested. Meanwhile, we have this, a letter written to the president of the United States by some CEOs of airlines, American airlines or U.S.-based airlines, including American airlines. And here's the key sentiment from the letter, quote, now is the time for the administration to sunset federal transportation travel restrictions, including the international pre-departure testing requirement and the federal mask mandate that are no longer aligned with the realities of the current epidemiological environment. So basically, please get rid of these pre-departure testing requirements for overseas trips and for the masks. Get rid of those masks on airplanes. There have been no major outbreaks and super spreader events on planes because they recycle the air in an effective way. They filter it and they, they, I should say, they circulate the air. They don't recycle it. They circulate new air. And it just doesn't make sense on its face where you have people, if you're sitting there reading a book or watching a movie with your mask off, that's not allowed. But you're sitting there slowly sipping a drink for an hour. That's fine. It's just it's craziness. And you have these CEOs begging the administration to catch up with what other places around the world have done. Like in the U.K., for example, they've already made this change. So I am really hoping that the quote-unquote science will change again and the CDC will give Biden the sort of wink and the nod permission to make this change. And we know that they are pressuring CDC To do that, and they've sort of teased that maybe a change is coming, and it cannot come soon enough because it's just not scientific and extremely aggravating 
to a lot of travelers. By the way, those who signed this included the CEO of Alaska Airlines, let's see, JetBlue, United Airlines, which is my airline, American, as I mentioned, Delta, Hawaiian, Southwest, and a few other uh, cargo carriers as well. So fingers crossed it's long past due for that change to be made. Meanwhile, in New York City, the mayor has announced that the vaccine mandate, there's now some exemptions. Athletes and entertainers no longer have to be vaccinated to do their job in New York City. So celebrate Nets fans. Kyrie Irving can play. Aaron Judge, I suspect, is unvaccinated. The New York Yankees, he can play. Because as we know, science tells us that athletes and entertainers are special and they don't need the vaccine mandate, unlike the rest of the people who still have the mandate. It's just the science. Science keeps changing in very interesting ways. It's The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back on The Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast, if you miss any of the live show, 3 to 6 Eastern, it's always free. It's always on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. So there was actually a little bit of news that came out of yesterday's hearings on Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson. They ended earlier today. And as I've been saying, we'll get a committee vote soon. And that will likely be a party lines vote. And then she'll be confirmed in early April. Almost exactly along party lines. I see Senator Mitch McConnell announced today he will be a no, as will almost all Republicans. All the Democrats will vote yes. There might be a handful, small handful of Republicans who also vote yes. But yesterday, Senator Ted Cruz was asking a number of questions, one about a case that is pending before the court that involves racial preferences or racial considerations in the realm of college admissions at Harvard specifically. And there's a lawsuit That has made it up to the Supreme Court. And Cruz noted that there might be a significant conflict of interest for Judge Jackson if she becomes and when she becomes Justice Jackson. Would she sit out that case because of that conflict? Here's the question and her answer. Cut 21. You're on the board of overseers of Harvard. If you're confirmed, do you intend to recuse from this lawsuit? That is my plan, Senator. So that sounds like a yes, that she would recuse herself on this issue, on this case, because of her role at Harvard, which is a party in the case. So I'm going to get back to that broader issue of racial considerations in college admissions in just a moment. I want to talk about a new poll, a national poll that just came out, and that's why I'll get to that issue here in a moment. It is from Ann Seltzer. And Ann Selzer is known as the gold standard pollster in Iowa. So people sort of hold their breath waiting to know what's going to happen in Iowa. And they often look at her data as the best predictor of where things are going, whether it's a presidential race, a presidential caucus, uh, a Senate race, for example. People respect her outfit. And she has a partnership with Grinnell College out there. So she does Iowa-based polls, but also national polling. She has a new national poll that's just out, and it finds President Biden's approval rating falling to 34 percent. I mean, it's just over one third of the country approving 
of the job performance of the president, 52 percent, a majority disapproving. So in this poll, Biden is underwater by 18 points. I saw a new AP poll out that has him at 43 percent unchanged over a month ago. Fox News has a new poll out that has Republicans ahead on the congressional ballot. So it is still very much looking like pretty dire environment nationally for the Democratic Party and for the president moving forward. On the issues within this poll from Grinnell College and and Selzer, Biden is slightly above water on handling COVID, which is broadly faded as a concern because cases are very low right now in this country. Hopefully they stay that way. But on other things like the Ukraine crisis, he's underwater by double digits, down 11 points. On the economy, Joe Biden, President Biden's job approval rating is 26 points underwater on the most important issue for the American people, the economy. He's underwater by 26 points. Now, one of the other questions that were asked or that was asked in this survey was related to the issue that we started the segment with. Let me read to you the question wording and then give you the results. Quote, in order to expand access to college for racial minorities, do you think a university should be allowed to take a person's race into account when deciding whether to admit that person as a student? Pretty straightforward question, although that first sentence fragment is at least putting a relatively positive spin, like a pro-diversity spin, in order to expand access to college for racial minorities. That's, you could argue, kind of putting the thumb on the scale a little bit in favor of this idea of colleges and universities taking race and skin color into account as a factor when making these decisions on college admissions. So do you think that should be allowed or not? Here's what the American people said in this poll. 27% of Americans said that, yes, universities should take race into account. 27%. 68% of Americans said no. Almost 7 out of 10 Americans in this poll said that colleges and universities should not be allowed to consider race at all. They want a colorblind process. That is a vast, vast majority of the American people. That's a 40-point margin. Now, because I'm sort of a data nerd a little bit, I found the poll itself. I went into the internals of it, the crosstabs, because I was curious about a racial breakdown on this. What's fascinating is they just broke it down into white people and non-white people, so they didn't break it out further than that, just white and non-white. There was virtually no gap at all on this question. 26% of white people said race should not be a factor in college admissions. 69% of white people said the same. So let me, I I misstated that. 26% of white people said it should be a factor. 69% said it should not. So a huge majority of white people against considering skin color and race in this process. But among non-white people, it's almost identical. 29% in favor, 68% opposed. Statistically insignificant, basically exactly the same. Now, this reminded me, it sparked a memory 
about another poll that I had written about. I felt like it was a few years ago. So I brought up Google and searched it. And indeed, I had written about this poll. It was from Pew Research back in 2019. So three years ago. And Pew asked a very similar question. And the way they phrase it was, what is the percent in, in announcing the results, the percent of Americans saying that race or ethnicity should be a blank in college admissions decisions? And so the options were major factor, minor factor, or not a factor. And here were the results three years ago from Pew, a totally different pollster, on a very similar question. The consideration of race in college admissions. Seven percent of Americans said that race should be a major factor in these decisions. Seven percent. An additional 19 percent said that it should be a minor factor. So that's 26 percent combined. Saying it should at least be some factor. Seventy three percent of the American people said that it should not be a factor at all. So just look at these two numbers, 27 percent in the Grinnell poll this week, brand new today that I'm reporting, 27 percent in favor of using skin color as a factor in this process. And three years ago, a totally different pollster, Pew, put the number at 26 percent. So within one percentage point, almost exactly the same. 68 percent in the new poll says it should not be a factor. 68% of those Americans saying it shouldn't be. 73% in the last poll that I'm referencing from Pew in 2019 saying the same. The numbers haven't budged. I said in the poll out of Grinnell College and the Seltzer outfit today that there was no gap between white people and non-white people. In the Pew numbers, the data set from three years ago, they actually did break it out. And... Black and Hispanic people were slightly more likely to favor factoring in skin color, but still super majorities of black people and Hispanics in this country were against it. 62% of black people saying it should not be a factor at all. 65% of Hispanic people should not be a factor at all. Now, why do I raise this? Not only because it was a question that came up in the Supreme Court hearings this week, not only because that case or a related case on this question is coming before the court this term, or is at least upcoming next term. That's true. These are relevant questions, and there will be decisions about them. Now, let's say the Supreme Court, which currently has a 6-3 conservative majority, let's say the Supreme Court takes the position that most Americans have on this, or something closer to it, you're going to hear yelling and screaming and rending of garments and gnashing of teeth, demands for court packing, expand the court. Whenever the left gets a an adverse outcome at the Supreme Court these days, they go rushing to social media demanding that the institution be blown up with a bomb by adding a bunch of new seats so they can just have their way. Their respect for norms and institutions is non-existent, except when respecting norms and institutions achieve the things that they want. But if that is what happens at the Supreme Court, which I think is likely that the left is going to be unhappy with the result of that case, 
And when the people go crazy, as they will, on social media, and you'll see it on your Twitter feed, and you'll see it from your friends on Instagram about how we're going backwards as a society and racism and all this stuff, and the activists will be out there beating drums and chanting and screaming, shame, shame, and all that's like what they always do on everything. And the media will be very concerned, very concerned about this. I want you to remember these polls. The American people, just about one quarter of the American people agree with the identity-obsessed, woke left who see everything as, you know, through the prism of race, who are fixated on race, on this issue of affirmative action in college admissions, which is not even the cutting edge at all. This is almost like an older issue. What they're up to these days is much more, you know, sinister. The CRT folks... Forget that. This is just affirmative action in college admissions. They have one quarter of the American people with them. Whereas 70% of the American people believe that using race and skin color as a factor at all in university admissions practices should not happen. They are a very loud, very influential minority. And we just cannot let them use their megaphone in such a way to try to convince the broader public that they actually are the dominant view. They're not. The dominant view across races in this country is let's be colorblind. Let's let students get in or not get in to colleges and universities based on the merit of their performance in extracurricular activities, in recommendation letters, and then, of course, in standardized testing, which a lot of people on the left are trying to undermine, saying that that's racist and unfair, which is, in some cases, actually really harmful to minority students who do very well on these tests, and it's their ticket to a better life. And then they're saying, oh, we got to shut down that opportunity because it's racist or whatever. It's for equity. We've got to water down or eliminate standardized testing. That is a big push among the identitarian left. And then grades, right, GPA and that sort of thing, your transcripts. The American people believe those should be the factors, not skin color. And you might say, well, what about people who have different advantages and people who whose families can afford to buy them all sorts of opportunities like tutors, right? They can pay tutors to come in on SATs or ACTs and someone can come in and help you know, Johnny or Susan study for their math tests and improve their numbers so their GPAs are better. That, I think that's a fair point. I think some of that can come down to socioeconomic status, how much, fa- how much money a family has, as opposed to just the skin color there. Right? You can have a very wealthy black person in a very wealthy community at an elite prep school, for example, who has all the advantages available to them imaginable, whereas some poor white kid in Appalachia might need that extra leg up, or it might be a black or Hispanic kid in an inner city who doesn't have the chance that a prosperous white guy might have or white girl might have in the suburbs. I think socioeconomic opportunity is a lot fairer than just boiling it down to skin color. And I think most Americans, based on this polling, agree with me on this, not with them. 
And I think that's really encouraging. The colorblind ideal, the content of character, or in this case, the content of achievement, much more important than the color of skin. And just distilling everything down in this very reductive way just to skin color as a shortcut for success or opportunity or lack thereof. I think there are ways to achieve diversity. I think diversity is important. Not just racial diversity, but other kinds as well. Life experience, worldview. I think there are ways to achieve that that are better than just going straight to race. And the American people, by a huge 40-plus percent margin, agree with that and disagree with the hardcore, identity-fixated, woke people. And it doesn't feel that way in our culture because they are extra loud and extra influential and they run a lot of the institutions like institutions of higher learning, media, pop culture, and increasingly corporate America as well. But in this case, it is not just a majority. It's a huge majority of Americans on the other side of this. And I think this poll out today, which is almost identical to the Pew poll from three years ago, really underscores how totally, deeply, profoundly out of touch they are. And I think sometimes we need to remind ourselves of that because they work tirelessly to convince us and everyone else otherwise. I got a break. When we come back, a quick update on another poll, totally different, out of Florida. Wait to hear these results. We'll get to that straight ahead on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on The Guy Benson Show, Mark Caputo of Politico in Florida flagging a new poll down in Florida. This is of Democrats in that state. They were asking about the gubernatorial primary where Charlie Crist has a 10-point lead on Nikki Freed, 43 to 33%. By the way, both of them are losing in this poll to Ron DeSantis. DeSantis has a nine-point lead over Crist and a 13-point lead over Freed in this survey. So that's interesting. DeSantis has $81 million cash on hand. The Democrats have a tiny fraction of that. So DeSantis really in the driver's seat. And it appears that we might have Ron DeSantis coming up on this show sometime soon. I don't want to spoil that, but we're working on it and we're getting close. One other element of this poll down in Florida of Democrats. Again, this is Democratic voters in Florida. They asked about the so-called don't say gay bill that I have problems with and I've laid out why. But I said opponents have been very stupid in the way they've criticized it going after this K through three issue where most Americans are going to agree that kids that age, young elementary school kids should not be taught about sexual orientation or gender identity at that age. But that's the issue that was polled. These are Democrats. 36% said that they agree that K through three kids should be taught about that issue in schools. 52%, a majority of Democrats say kids should not be taught about that in schools at that age. So the opponents have framed this badly and they're losing the issue as a result. Final hour coming up. 
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour here on today's Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. Happy to have you along every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern, and if you can't listen live, on our podcast, which is free of charge on demand, GuyBensonShow.com. Catch me tonight on Special Report with the panel. It'll be Matt Continetti and Leslie Marshall and yours truly alongside Brett Bayer, right around 640 Eastern on Fox News Channel. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is crisp and delicious and refreshing and growing in popularity. They've added eight new states to their footprint in the last few weeks alone. They continue to expand. You should check it out if you haven't yet. TheLongDrink.com for all that information, including where it's sold near you. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only, and always drink responsibly. With us now is Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, retired Fox News contributor, former National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, and he's the author of the book, War by Other Means. General, it's great to have you back here. It's great to meet you, actually, earlier at the Bureau as well. Yeah, Guy, Guy, thanks for having me. I appreciate being on with you. So we saw President Biden earlier today gave some remarks, answered some questions after this NATO summit over in Brussels. Among other things, he said that there are some new sanctions being slapped on Russian elites. He called on Russia to be removed from the G20 He also said that the United States and NATO would respond if Russia uses chemical weapons in Ukraine. I wonder what you think about that. What could a response look like? And how worried are you about the Russians using chemical weapons? Yeah, Guy. Well, look, thanks for having me. Um, Again, look, this was an emergency session of NATO. And he spoke more about NATO than he did about Ukraine, which is unfortunate. I think he should have really focused in on what they were all doing to support Ukraine and their fight with Russia. But one of the things they should have also mentioned, I think, was the question on nuclear biological chemical. If those are used, have some type of response, very hard response uh, to Putin to let him know what a kind of response would be. And the reason why I'm saying that is I'm not a big believer that he's going to go nuclear but I think he may go chemical if he does. And the reason for that is in his DNA. You know, Putin has used chemicals against his adversaries. You know, look what he did with Navalny. And then he's also used it in support of his allies, the Syrians. And they've used sarin nerve gas back in 2012 and 13, killed over a 1,000 people in Damascus when they used to Remember, this was when they used sarin. This is when right after... President Obama, with Joe Biden as his vice president, said that would be a red line that it was crossed. Then we're going to do something. And, of course, it was crickets. You never heard a thing about it after they crossed it. Uh, so we need to tell him, he meaning Putin, what will happen if we use his chemicals. Because I think that's something they'll use because they'll use it as a terror weapon, primarily against civilians. He, he's had no problem using it, he being Putin. And I think that's uh, it, it's 
because it's been used in the past, people may not, not take it as seriously as a nuclear weapon, which hasn't been used or an atomic weapon even since 1945. Uh, so we should have stood up and said, if you use it, you've gone beyond the norms, beyond the pale, and we're going to respond. You know, when President Trump, um, when that happened on our watch early on in April of 2017, I remember we went into the Oval Office, we told him what happened. He said, God, he would tell how horrible it was, and we have to respond. Within hours, we had a plan coming up to respond. We didn't draw a red line. We didn't talk about a red line. He just fired about 65 Tomahawk land attack missiles against the air base where the nerve gas came out of in the aircraft that it was on. Yeah, the only thing he said well, Trump, afterwards is it, Trump was actually enforcing Obama's red line that Obama didn't yeah, yeah. enforce, but he did draw. Uh, yeah, and and, and the reason I was going to say there was he even said, why didn't we put one through the front door of the Russian commander in the airfield? General Mattis didn't think that was such a good idea, but it, I, I thought to myself that wouldn't have been a bad idea. But but he did. He enforced it because he said this is a crime against humanity. You know, guy. Interestingly enough, the entire four years after that. The Syrians and the Russian buds never used nerve gas again in Syria. Didn't use it at all. They had it available. We know that. They just didn't use it. Hmm. Now, that's actually an interesting detail in all of this. In Ukraine right now, there are multiple reports emerging that the Ukrainian forces are actually making some significant gains. Maybe not huge, but slowly but surely gaining back some ground from the Russian invaders, especially in the outskirts of Kiev. They've gotten one uh, suburban town back. They're pushing forward both north and northeast is what it looks like, even as the Russians are just absolutely shelling and devastating a city like Mariupol in the south. There seems to be a, a real a perhaps sea change up north. And I guess the question becomes, with NATO now reporting their estimate of 15,000, Russian troops that have been killed already. Uh, more than a dozen high-ranking officers from the Russians have reportedly been killed. Five generals on the battlefield have been killed. It seems like the West has penetrated their communications. They're leaking out what the Russians are saying to each other almost on a daily basis at this point. Is the Russian military on the brink, potentially, of a military just defeat, in your view? Yeah, I do. I think they are. I think uh, if anybody would have asked the majority of, quote, military experts, unquote, about this, they said it would never have happened. Because remember, General Miller, our chairman of the Joint Chiefs, said if the Russians attack, they'll attack and take Kiev within three days. Well, now it's been a month. And it's like any military operation, they, once they get extended in time, this has gone on for a month, your, your equipment starts to break down, your logistics supplies start to break. People get tired, hungry, worn out, and they've been at this for a full month. And you have to count the time they were in attack areas before they launched the uh, the invasion. So they've been out in the field for six to seven weeks. Well, troops get tired. In fact, that's the losses. If those losses are in fact accurate, and I actually cut those by a third, only because I just do it for common sense. That's still a significant number. And when because you always add in when you said killed, you always add traditionally in two to one. For every one dead, there's two wounded. Uh, so those numbers are starting to get quite large, and the fact that they've lost their momentum, trying to restart that is really hard. It seems to me they they went from plan A to plan B, and now they're in plan C, and they can't quite figure it out. And because of that, they're going to be on their heels. I've seen military operations that have seemed like this, and once you lose that ability to go forward, then people start going, well, how do I get home? Well, because they're losing, and and the reports are, General, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, that some of these Russian troops now have frostbite because they don't have appropriate uh, 
gear. They are running out of ammo. They are running out of fuel. They are running out of food. They can't evacuate their own, you know, dead colleagues. That all adds up to, I would imagine, rock bottom morale, especially when the Ukrainians continue to show they are not going to buckle. Do we lose the general? I think we may have lost him momentarily. But one other thing that I'd like to get back to him on is one specific development that is very interesting. Well, General, before I ask you this follow-up question, just your reaction there on, on morale and some of the reports about how rough, how dire things have gotten for a lot of these Russian forces. Well, look, we've always known that leadership is a, has been a lacking in in the Russian and before that the Soviet military. They don't have the non-commissioned officers, the sergeants that we have or the junior lieutenants like we have that take initiative on the battlefield. They wait for the senior officer to do it. That's one of the reasons why you're seeing these generals being killed because they operate at a much more senior level. And then if they don't have the leadership, then they don't care of the sol- take care of the soldiers. And if they don't take care of the soldiers, the soldiers aren't going to take care of them. And when you start running into health issues, frostbite or food problems, and we saw them scavenging for food, and water, and then you tack on top of that the fact they're in a hostile environment and they know the Ukrainians want to kill them. This does not bode well for a good offensive operation. A quick operation would have worked. Now that you go into a long-term operation, this can be very, very bad for them. Look, I will. I really believe this. If this goes for an extended period, if if the Soviets at the time, now the Russians thought Afghanistan was bad, uh, this is going to be child's. Afghanistan will be child's play. They will make this a living hell for them. And and because of that, I think the opportunity for the Ukrainians to win is there as long as we give them the support they're asking for. And we haven't done that yet. It's almost like we're being exceptionally cautious about it. We need to give them the MiGs. We need to give them the S-300 systems. We need to give them the Switchblade 600s, not the the 300s, because it's a lesser capability. We need to give them intelligence. Show them where the Russians are. Pass that to them somehow. We need to develop covert operations. There's a lot of things we can be doing that we are not doing, because I don't think we thought they could win, so so we weren't giving them the support they need. Now that they're winning, we should give them everything they, they want. If they want a battleship, we should figure a way to get one out of mothball and put it in, in, you know, in a black sea, do something for them. I want to ask you this question, and it's somewhat specific, so I'm not sure if you've seen the report, but the UK Daily Telegraph reporting that a very advanced Russian electronic warfare system called the Krasuka 4, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, has actually been captured on the battlefield by the Ukrainians. This was an extremely sophisticated sort of Uh, electronic warfare system that jams radar and prevents reconnaissance satellites from the enemies. And apparently Russia's enemies in the West have been very eager to learn more about this particular system. And now at least a large part of one has been captured by the Ukrainians. And the report is that that is already on the way back to the United States for a very thorough examination That seems like another big blow and humiliation to the Russians beyond just Ukraine, but the abilities of their military broadly, if now the West has one of their most powerful uh, weapons in in our possession to learn everything about it, it seems like a goldmine for intelligence. Yeah, it is. And we do that routinely. Sometimes we have to buy it from other countries. You know, a few years back, 
in Afghanistan, we had trouble, the Mujahideen had trouble killing the Hind D, and it took us a while to re, reconfigure the uh, Stinger missile to kill it. And that was because we actually went out and bought one on the black market, uh, current Hind D, and, uh, and redeveloped the Stinger missile to be able to kill the air, aircraft. It's the same thing you're doing with, the, with the, uh, the radars and any type of VW capability. It's a huge loss. But the, and this is going to continue on with the Russians because they threw their frontline units at it. You know, I want to make sure everybody understands that they didn't put a bunch of conscripts in the field. They deployed, they, the Russians, took their frontline units, the best units they had, their air assault, their airborne units, their guards, tank army units, and put them in the field. And that's what they're losing now. And you can't backfill those because once you lose those, you have to go to the conscripts. So the longer this goes, it doesn't bode well for the Russians because they're going yeah, to be the conscripts presumably would be less motivated less professional, less lethal of a fighting force, far less trained and effective. I mean, that's not the way that you come from behind to win a war. I, I hope everything that you're saying here is true because it's it's very uh, optimistic, I'd say, for the people of Ukraine, the leadership of Ukraine, extremely bad news for the Russians. I hope that continues to be the case moving forward. There's a report that some huge number of Russian troops might be encircled by the Ukrainians. We're watching it all very closely here on the show with the help of people like Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, Fox News contributor. General, thank you so much. Guy, thanks for having me. You bet. Talk to you again soon. It's the Guy Benson Show, and we'll be right back. As we continue on the Guy Benson Show, we were just talking about the war in Ukraine, and it has been one month since Russia invaded, and clearly things have not gone the way that the Russians were expecting or hoping, and the Ukrainians have been just heroic in their valiant, ongoing defense of their country. Their leader, President Zelensky, addresses the country frequently. He does so, naturally, almost every night in Ukrainian. But last night, he addressed the nation in English, obviously with an eye toward an international audience as well, on the one-month anniversary. And part of what he said in Cut 4 was about the broader implications of Russia's aggression. Listen. The war of Russia is not only the war against Ukraine. Its meaning is much wider. Russia started the war against freedom as it is. This is only the beginning for Russia on the Ukrainian land. Russia is trying to defeat the freedom of all people in Europe, of all the people in the world. It tries to show that only crude and cruel force matters. It tries to show that people do not matter as well as everything else that make us people. That's the reason we all must stop Russia. The world must stop the war. I thank everyone who acts in support of Ukraine, in support of freedom, but the war continues. The acts of terror against peaceful people go on. One month already, that long. It breaks my heart, hearts of all Ukrainians and every free person on the planet. He's standing in this courtyard, presumably in Kyiv, as he makes these comments. And I think that example, his refusal to be spirited away to safety, he was offered that pathway by the United States. And he reportedly told President Biden, I don't need a ride. I need weapons. So he has stayed there on the ground in his country, 
in the capital city rallying his people and rallying free people around the world day in and day out. It has been just an extraordinary feat to watch. And the Russians must be so angry watching the success that he has met with. And the contrast between him and the sort of shark dead behind the eyes, Vladimir Putin, it is striking. He mentioned in his remarks last night that he wants people on this day to come out and flood into the streets and show solidarity. This is not just a morale booster for the country. We've made it this far. We've survived this long. And in fact, they've done more than survive. They're actually starting to make some gains in a counteroffensive, as we talked about earlier. But this is also, I think, a signal to the invasion forces about how the will of the Ukrainians is not broken and will not be broken anytime soon. If anyone's will might get broken, it seems like it's many Russian troops so far, those who haven't been killed, 10 to 15,000 by some estimates. So this was Zelensky's call to a showing, a forceful showing of national unity and support. Cut three. The world must stop the war. Show your standing. Come from your offices, your homes, your schools and universities. Come in the name of peace. Come with Ukrainian symbols to support Ukraine, to support freedom, to support life. Come to your squares, your streets. Make yourselves visible and heard. Last note on this, I saw a video yesterday of Russian troops in Ukraine surrounded by large numbers of Ukrainians. The Ukrainians appear to be unarmed. The Russian soldiers have guns, and they're slowly retreating as the crowd presses toward them, telling them to get out, telling them to go back to Russia, that sort of thing. And then the crowd began singing the Ukrainian national anthem. And you could see the Russian soldiers were hugely outnumbered, sort of bewildered about what to do, and were walking backwards, firing warning shots into the sky. The Ukrainians didn't flinch. They kept singing and walking peacefully, but purposely forward. What a scene. And we're seeing that all across that country. Day after day, it's remarkable. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues after this break. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. In our first hour today, we welcome back Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief of The Federalist and Fox News contributor. We had quite a few things to talk about today. Here's part of that conversation from The Washington Post, arguing that Republicans this week treated Judge Jackson worse than the Democrats treated Brett Kavanaugh in 2018. You wrote the book literally on that process. I've made my points about how insultingly wrong that claim is, that lie is from The Washington Post. But I wanted to get your perspective because you know even more about this than I do. Well, I'm glad you called it a lie because that's what it is. It's a knowing lie to claim that asking a judge not even particularly tough questions about her judicial record is worse than falsely accusing someone of being a serial gang rapist, which is what The Washington Post did 
as a leader of the anti-Kavanaugh effort. I have no doubt they would like to memory hole what they did to that man and what they did to the judicial confirmation proceedings. I, I would, too, if I were them, if I had done such horrible, despicable, evil things, I would want to lie about it, too. But they cannot be allowed to cover up what they did and that they were the leaders of this effort uh, cannot be forgotten either. Many media people and other Democrats participated in it, but the Washington Post really bears a lot of the responsibility, and they can't be allowed to forget it. Yeah. And I just want to address a few things here, because what we're also hearing is that, oh, well, Kavanaugh was credibly accused of sexual assault, and there were multiple accusers. Just to break this down for a moment, there were four allegations against Kavanaugh. One was from Christine Blasey Ford. There was absolutely no evidence to support her claims at all. And her own father doesn't believe her. Her star witness doesn't believe her. Her star witness was pressured to lie on her behalf on this front. No evidence, none. The second allegation was a woman who went to Yale with Kavanaugh. She was, and even the New York Times reported this, phoning up friends before she made the allegation on behalf of or in conjunction with her left-wing lawyers, trying to see if they could crowdsource a memory about Brett Kavanaugh. She's like, I think something like this happened to me. Was it Brett Kavanaugh? Could it have been Brett Kavanaugh? She wasn't even sure what happened or that it was Kavanaugh. She made the claim anyway. And there is, again, no evidence supporting it. And the people she says were in the room when it happened all say it did not happen. So that one was not true, not credible. Then you had the gang rape Julie Swetnick insanity, totally debunked, uh, just a complete fever dream that the Democrats seized on to call for Kavanaugh to be withdrawn as a nominee. And the fourth allegation was through a third party. And the woman in question came out and said, this is not true. This never happened. They are 0 for 4. They're not even close to presenting any evidence. But to this day, they continue, Molly, to insist darkly that he's some sort of sexual predator. And he got away with it because the Republicans don't care about sexual predation. And then they have the stones to turn around and say the question and answers this week with Judge Jackson were you know, terrible and, and out of place. It absolutely makes me furious. You are right to be furious. And, you know, just even that point of how they're never admitting that what they said wasn't true. That's why Carrie Severino and I wrote the book in the first place. We had lived through the Clarence Thomas proceedings, which were uh, in some ways worse, in some ways more mild. Uh, he was accused of sexual harassment. At the end of his proceedings, the vast majority of Americans, black, white, male, female, believed him. But then the left went on a 30-year crusade to sort of never let it go. They created fictional movies and you know, fictionalized documentaries and books and magazine articles to just keep on pushing this point. And knowing that that's what they would do with Kavanaugh, Carrie and I thought it was important to get the actual history down. So we interviewed more than 100 people, many of them several times, you know, everyone involved in the whole play, you know, in the whole action, um, you know, people very close to all the key players. And we were able to write down this this definitive history based on reporting. And yet you see what the left does. They, they want to kind of hide the fact that they never had any substantiation for any of their feverish claims and just continue to try to destroy the life and family of a man that they didn't like for purely political reasons. And that is despicable. I think much of the country was horrified by what people were willing to do. It radicalized a lot of people, awakened mm -hmm. them to how much the media lie. And I would just point out, they lied about that then. They lied about what they did then. What else are they lying about now? 
What are yeah, they telling the truth about might be a better question because it seems so rarely to occur. I would note that in 2018, which is when this happened, there was a midterm election. The Democrats gained 40 seats in the House that year. But the map was a little different in the Senate. Republicans gained multiple Senate seats that cycle. And I think a lot of that was driven by this, by a Republican base that was maybe not excited to turn out in some of these Senate races. But they did because they were so angry about what had been done to Kavanaugh. And it backfired on the Democrats because then Republicans had more senators to comfortably confirm Amy Amy Coney Barrett. My full interview with Molly Hemingway available online, GuyBensonShow.com, also part of our free podcast, the whole show every day on demand, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, producer Christine already regretting a big decision that she made. We'll get into that next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Thursday on the Guy Benson Show, where our podcast is growing big time. Saw some of the numbers earlier today. We are so grateful you guys are just killing it, crushing it for us. Let's keep it rolling. Let's keep growing. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com. Wherever you get your podcast, lots of options every day. And, of course, listening live is the best option. 3 to 6 Eastern Time. Follow us on social at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Well, you know that recently producer Christine made a big life change. She wanted to sell her house, make a big profit, move to an apartment, and then wait a little while and then buy a bigger, better house down the line a little bit. And that is the plan that has been executed so far. And, Christine, it sounds like you might be having, let's just say, a few second thoughts or adjustments that are being made to apartment life. What would you like to tell us about that? If I continue with this conversation, I would like to tell you that my husband is probably not going to speak to me. So Why? why? Well, because this was my idea, you know, from start to finish. Did he not want to sell the house? No, he did. He did. Okay. All right. So he can own that, too. It's not just you. But um, apartment living. Uh, Hadn't done it since my 20s. And it is, let's just say it's an adjustment. It's definitely an adjustment. And I hope that uh, this all works out and this is great. But I'm also happy that this is only a 12-month lease, just in case. So you're already contemplating leaving the apartment one year later, like at the earliest possibility. I I can see us definitely looking elsewhere after a year. But let's just— Is the apartment not what you expected, like, in terms of the amenities? The apartment is great, the actual apartment. Um. It's the sounds, you know, you, I I forgot, like there's, you know, people are walking upstairs. You kind of hear Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, or if people are walking by in the hallway or it's just, um. And there's rules, right? It's not just your house. You're not queen of the castle anymore, right? You can't just do whatever you want on your property because it's not really your property. It's just temporarily rented property. Okay. I'm going to tell you something right now because I told my best friend Wyatt and since you're my best friend too, I guess I should just put it out there. Nobody's really friendly to me, and it's really, really bothering me. Like, I go out of my way to try to, like, 
meet people and talk to them and everybody just kind of like ignores me and like I'm very worried I'm not going to find any friends here. Might you be perhaps getting a little overly aggressive in your efforts to make friends? Could that maybe be an oversell on your part that is causing people to sort of reflexively recoil? I'm a nice girl. It's not like I'm knocking on doors saying, hi, I have wine. Do you want a drink? Which if someone knocked on my door and said that, I'd be like, you come in right now. Yeah, that might actually be a better plan than whatever you're doing. I'm just trying to like chat up people if I see them outside, especially with Rosie or like, you know, just say hello. Even Megan today, she's like, mommy, like you just said hello to that woman and she just didn't even barely looked at you. And I said, I know. Um, Sometimes the cleaning people will talk to me a little bit. They're very, very nice, but I just had a different idea. In my head, I must have built up this apartment living, and it's nowhere. It's not what I thought. So Yeah, and you're already kind of glancing for the exits? I mean, I don't have anywhere you've been to go. In this, you've been in this apartment for nine days? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just going to say that I expressed a healthy skepticism to this entire plan from the beginning, once it was clear that you were taking the plunge and the die was cast, I stopped voicing my reservations because I did not want to undermine a plan that was underway. But Adam and I were talking about it like it is hard to downsize. It's not like you guys are retiring and you've got Megan off to college and Rosie is an older girl and sort of mellow. You're in the prime of busy life. And downsizing from a house to an apartment in some of those key years, there was just some, I guess, doubts about how well you would take to the new environment. And it sounds ooh, kind of like you're not so sure this was the right call. What about your mom, Judgy Joyce? Is she judging this decision? Is she supporting the decision? Has she seen the place yet? She is completely judging the situation. She slept over because Bobby is on a work trip for the week. So she slept over to help me with Megan. And um, no, she's she just doesn't think this was the right move. She, she's also so critical, though, you know, just a, uh, her nickname is Judgy. Joyce. Yeah, she's like, yeah, thanks for the amount of money you pay. You know, this would be done or that would be done or, you know, just like constant in my ear, and then she had it in my head, you know, saying, oh, well, thank God, this is only a 12-month lease, and then we'll find something else. So um, that's not very helpful when you're already having doubts. So, you know, and my poor husband, he's so confused because he left on Sunday night, and I was the happiest. I'm like, this is the best decision. We went out to dinner, like, so happy. And I've called him every day since and said, like, we have to move. This was terrible. I don't know what I was thinking. So... Obviously, I, um, what's the word? I tend to get a little hysterical on things. We know that. I think change is, you know, tough, and I, I, I'm going to have to deal and obviously live with my decisions until I can figure a way to buy a townhome. And you're just hoping that, let's say, a year from now, the market is quieter and not as red hot, although interest rates could be a factor, right? So, yeah, I mean, it might. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I feel a little defeated right now. Actually, talking to White helps a lot because he lives in an apartment too. So, some of the concerns that I did have. Oh, he's you know, 21. <sighs> and he lives by himself. Okay. 
So? so so slightly different. Like I think we all lived in apartments when we were in our twenties, as you did. I just and again, there's no problem with people who live in apartments. Many many people live in apartments all across the country and the world. I just think it's a difference of owning and living in a house, and then giving up that space, that land, that flexibility and freedom for something that is just different. And this was not done out of necessity, right? Like, oh, I'm moving from the country or I lived in Ohio, but I've been hired by Fox and I'm coming to New York and I have to live in the city for my commute. So we have to be in an apartment because no one can afford a house in New York City, right? That would be one thing. But you made a decision. This was an proact- This was a proactive choice on your part to leave the house, move into an apartment. And I'm just, I don't know, I'm just sort of wondering but why also, some of these issues were not were they not were, anticipated. They were, but you, I mean, obviously I'm not going to talk about it on air, but I don't think you understand the realm of what we bought the house for and what we sold the house for. It was, yeah, so, so that is a counterpoint, right? Like the counterpoint is you take a look at your bank account and you have definitely made gains there, right? That's not insignificant. Was, we're talking about almost double. Yeah, no, that is that is a very strong point in favor of the decision that you made. But now what do I do? I think you understand that you've signed a lease. A year of your life is a long period of time. It doesn't make sense to just decide to be dissatisfied and miserable for a year. Just make the best of it. And some of the stuff that's still the growing pains of going back into a new scenario, like when you move to a new place and you hear new sounds for the first time, you're like, oh, wow, planes overhead or that train over there, that's really disruptive. After a while, you just get used to it. And it becomes part of your everyday stuff. So I and kind of your routine and your expectation, it fades into the background. So I think maybe some of these concerns that are seemingly acute right now will not be as bothersome and irksome to you, even in a matter of weeks. Okay. And what about finding drinking friends? Well, I mean, I feel like it's probably not a good idea for you to sit in a common place, like a common space in the apartment building with just a giant open box of wine, hoping that someone might approach you. Guy, I wouldn't can... do that. I would put it in a solo cup. Okay, yes. I, my mistake. That's a much classier move. But then someone might not know what you're drinking, right? You kind of want to advertise, hey, look, we got some mama's juice over here. Come be my friend. Right? So I think what you need to do is stick with your normal friends, your old friends. They're not gone just because you move to an apartment kind of near your house. Stick with that. And then you're inevitably going to find some friendly people in the building. Maybe find someone who has a dog. Find someone who has a child roughly Megan's age. Find someone that has something in common with you, and and that's maybe the way you start. I also think maybe, like, you know, it's been cold again up here. Maybe with the warmer weather, the summer, the pool, you know. Right. There's a pool, which you did not have at the house. No. It's huge. Huge pool. So that's that's an opportunity in the months to come once it's spring heading into summer. Yes, I am doing my best (laughs) to talk you back off the ledge. But I think the broader lesson here Mm -hmm. is when decisions are being made, small, medium, or especially large, I think latching on to a conclusion that you think you want at the beginning and then sort of backfilling everything else around that conclusion is not necessarily the right call. And I think that we should just have some teachable moments. And I know we try to have a lot of them with Cookie. And they don't always catch, right? They don't really take some of the lessons. But this is a big one. 
So, you know, maybe a year from now we will be talking on this show and doing home stretches about your move out of the apartment and your move to whatever the new adventure might be, a house or a townhome or whatever. Or maybe a year from now you'll say, you know what, the market isn't quite what we want yet and we're actually very happy and we got used to everything and it was the right call. And then we say, fantastic, and we move on to whatever your hypothetical future crisis might be on another subject. So I think time will tell. But I think introspection, making good decisions, thinking things through, not getting tunnel vision, not panicking, not catastrophizing. These are all things that can be worked on. And that's stuff that you can talk about with your multiple therapists, your guardian angel, your hypnotist, your medium and your psychic. Just different ways to work on some of those elements of personal growth. That's all I'm saying. I almost just said you were exaggerating, but every person you just mentioned, I do have in my life. Plus Dan and Wyatt and me, your radio group therapy family, apparently. We're out of time. Back here tomorrow for the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show. I'm on Special Report, coming up in just about 40 minutes, around 6.40 Eastern, Fox News Channel with Brett Bayer and company. Then, of course, here on the radio again tomorrow, 3 to 6 Eastern, every weekday. For The Guy Benson Show, we will talk to you then. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.